Hello everyone, this is Dylan, your podcast host. Before we get started, I just wanted to let everyone know that our longtime co-host Christine Richards is no longer going to be a host of the podcast because she's taken the job in her hometown of Denver. And so I just wanted to say to Christine, a big thanks for your many years of service here at Z Prime and for the wonderful insights and personality you brought to the podcast in our first year as it's grown, and also for being a good friend and mentor to myself and to Aaron, our other co-host. So thank you to Christine. Good luck on all your future endeavors. And now, on with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Z Prime on the Grid. It's our show about issues concerning the energy industry. I am your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me today is my co-host, Aaron Hardick, research analyst. How are you today, Aaron? I'm doing well, Dylan. I'm actually in a kind of weird situation right now. I was telling you guys before we started the show that I'm kind of in the middle of moving, and normally I sit at my kitchen table while we record these podcasts, but my roommate has actually sold our kitchen table, so now I'm sitting in an empty kitchen at my uh, island in the middle of the kitchen. Um, so it's kind of a weird transitionary period, but I'm excited to be doing the podcast. That's a fun visual. <laughs> just a, just Aaron in an em- empty house. Uh, that gleeful chuckle you just heard is our guest today. He is the global business development leader at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, also known as NREL. Uh, Matthew Futch, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking, Dylan. Everything's, uh, you know, it's another day of uh, hard science and soft science at the, at the lab. Those are my two favorite kinds of science. Uh, <laughs> so uh, why don't you just do, give us a short introduction about what NREL is and what you do there? Absolutely. So NREL is the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. It is a 40-year-old federal lab, uh, almost exclusively focused on the development of renewable energy, all forms. Uh, We do both the really foundational, low, kind of super, super deep foundational science, like how do you get solar to be almost 90% efficient using different kind of uh, materials as opposed to silicon, maybe silicon carbide, different kinds of material science to more commercial stuff, um, which is maybe something more interesting maybe to our audience today, which is um, how do you get uh, large amounts of renewables uh, reliably and cost-effectively integrated into a system that still has a lot of incumbent other energy resources. So we're doing a lot of research in that as well. So it is a federal lab and we have about 2,000 people and about maybe about a $400 million total operating budget. I'd like to talk about the role that research organizations like NREL play in the energy space. What about the work you do makes it an imperative for both business and consumer alike? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, Why are we relevant, right? Um, You know, I I think that the best way to tackle this question is to think about an example um, that actually goes back a little ways with the lab. So when we first uh, were trying to get some breakthrough uh, in efficiency on solar panels for PV uh, with First Solar. They were one of the first um, commercial partners to really kind of dig down deep into the material science. 
there were some issues that we were having um, at sort of the more fundamental level with how the chemistry was working and how efficient it was to convert um, the the power from the sun and the rays into actual you know exciting electrons on the on the substrate and actually getting it to be something efficiently to go to the uh, inverter scale. So this was a big barrier. Um, it was enormously expensive and time-consuming, and it was definitely not something that um, a company that used to work in the private sector would be able to do on its own because it just it requires too much um, research, it requires too much money, um, and don't have enough time to make you know the quarterly profits and operating budget you need to make. Um, so we paired with them. We uh, worked with First Solar. This was about maybe about 10 years ago on getting a breakthrough in that area. They donated some of their materials, and then we really got to work in the, the wet labs on the science side. And they made a very, very significant um, breakthrough using that particular uh, PV crystalline. Um, it was actually a new chemistry that had been created. It's old school now. But that really spawned, um, you know, a very standard technology that is uh, deployed around the world globally um, for PV silicon crystal. Um, so I think that's a good example. We do the stuff that is um, too hard and too expensive and maybe is not ready for prime time. And, and that's, I think, the role of the lab to do that type of work. And then on the commercial scale, we have to deal with problems that we have right now that are really causing a lot of issues in the industry. We work on that type of stuff. Too. Yeah, you said you're, you're working on the stuff that's, you know, too hard for others. So like what freedoms are you allowed in the renewable space that maybe like a private tech company wouldn't have? Why would a utility come to yeah. you with a project? Yeah, so um, let me, I think this is uh, the best way I can handle these is to think of some real good examples that are um, companies that we're working with right now on some, some problems that are hard to solve. And one of them is the problem of synthetic inertia. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, can you operate, you know, since we have such a significant amount of um, intermittent and um, resources that do not operate with inertial spin, so you don't have large rotational spin happening in the in the distribution or the bulk power system. If you have, you know, a network in California that's 30%, you know, distributed PV, you know, 40% um, some, some gas uh, components. If you have a system that's moving away from large inertial uh, inertial response from big rotational spin that comes from power plants, conventional power plants, and you got you got a physics and um, uh, utility problem, operator problem, and it's a significant one, which is that as you get away from having inertial uh, response and sort of a, a basic component of the way that the, the, uh, the system works from getting 60 hertz that's stable for the whole system, um, it gets harder and harder to have a stable, reliable electric power system that uh, is not highly disrupted by um, spikes in uh, the wind and sun. So that's a big problem. It's not a problem right now, but it's something that is going to grow over time. It's a, it's, a, it's a math and physics problem. So we are working on that now with PG&E and some um, international utilities that are uh, much, much higher penetration of, uh, of renewables on their system, on the distribution system. And we're working with inverter companies on whether or not the inverters, the smart inverters, can basically provide those services, those real reactive power services, to uh, essentially mimic and provide the same sort of reliable liability services that um, the conventional power plants 
can operate so that you could actually operate an entire system without conventional power and completely on renewables so that's we have the freedom to do that because we are funded by the Department of Energy and we um, are thinking about the long-term problem as opposed to what do we need to do next quarter to make you know the next numbers for a profit what kind of roadblocks uh, do you have to deal with because like I imagine that that doesn't while that kind of funding and that kind of flexibility is really useful, I imagine that there's a there's an opposite side to that coin. So what, what kind of challenges do you have to deal with that maybe other uh, companies and that companies and other organizations might not? Yeah, that's a really good question, too. I mean, there, there definitely is a um, there is a challenge definitely working in the lab or any lab for that matter. There's, there's 11 national labs. I think they all sort of face the same conundrum. Um, which is true, of, I think, of uh, research and development or R&D here in the U.S. or abroad and globally. And, and that is, you know, how do you make the choices, the strategic choices necessary um, to move technologies and entire industries forward um, without getting caught up in this particular problem, which is if you have, um, let's say you're working on something that's advanced uh, math or advanced protocols for, you know, autonomous energy transportation. That's just an example. We're, working, we're moving into the space on, on the transportation side. In the industry, say Uber or um, any of the other major um, companies like that, if they're developing something like um, air taxis where they want to have fully electric air taxis that you can just push a button on your smartphone and I'm not going to ride one of these, by the way, anytime soon. But if you can, uh, if they can offer and deliver those products in the market um, without really some basic R&D, but at the same time you sort of see as a research lab that this is going to pose some really fundamental problems to uh, the industry, you know, how do you make the choices that are uh, working with partners that um, enable things that already exist in the field and, and commercial products and things that people want, but um, also push the technology in a way um, that becomes scalable. So you're having this tension all the time between um, fast, uh, rapid change, technological change, and the need to make sure that, you know, you really get some really hard, difficult physics and math and other material science problems solved so that, you know, you don't have this massive amount of capital being deployed out in the market that then just gets wasted because you haven't really been able to deal with the upcoming issues that are maybe five to 10 years on the horizon. So it's this difficult balancing act between, you know, the needs of the market versus the needs of, you know, some really uh, true scientific um, problems that need to be resolved on the power system. So that's a challenge for the labs. You really just butchered that Star Trek quote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a problem with it, all the research, like, you know, I'm surrounded by researchers. I am not a researcher, but I'm getting, uh, I think I'm getting slowly, you know, assimilated, as they say. I mean, we, we established on a previous podcast that everyone in this industry deep down is a huge nerd. Uh. <laughs> I think that's probably true. So, Matt, I, I have a question for you. You know, I would imagine that all of the time you guys have different you know stakeholders different people interested in seeing you guys research different things that they feel are really important or problems that are very important to solve for the industry but um, we know that different organizations can be motivated motivated by you know different things and have a different set of values or a different set of goals they want to accomplish so how do you guys at NREL start to narrow down you know 
this is what's important. This is what we really need to be focused on um, to make sure that you are actually, you know, getting this research out, getting um, getting important information out to the industry and kind of sorting through the weeds to determine, you know, this is what we need to be focusing on versus this isn't as much of a priority. How do you guys do that? Yeah, that's, um, that's a great question. So uh, the short answer is that we are largely directed by the imperatives that the programmatic offices have um, at the, uh, the Department of Energy. So if, um, for, as an example, if the EERE office and the Office of Electricity uh, back in Washington, if they have a real desire and some um, leadership directives to focus on, say, microgrids or resiliency or other issues that have to do with sort of this interplay between, I'll just give an example, between uh, natural gas and electricity. If that's something that they choose as a long-term sort of um, research program that they want to expand and will fund through fiscal year allocations, then that really has a big influence on uh, programmatically what we decide to do as a lab. And then we use the partners or our, um, you know, our technical private sector partners that we work with to sort of supplement or accelerate those priorities that the Department of Energy has. So it starts with the DOE, uh, the US Department of Energy and what their priorities are, and then we um, work with the private sector to sort of, I guess, tweak around the edges or uh, make sure that we are guided by um, what's actually happening in the field. And it's not always just primarily about research and development, but fundamentally it's, it's, uh, it's R&D priorities of the US Department of Energy. What's something that you're working on right now that you're really excited about, that, that you can talk about, I imagine? You can't talk about everything, but. Okay. Yeah. So I, I was hoping maybe you asked me this question. This is the thing I was hoping we could, um, we could noodle on this one a bit because this one's complicated. And um, I think, uh, and that's what, what I'm referring to is uh, large net zero um, infra infrastructure projects. Um, and how do you actually make that work from a, you know, engineering standpoint, but also from from financial regulatory standpoint too. Um, so we just completed, or we're pretty much close to closing out the first phase of our project with Excel Energy and Panasonic um, near the Denver International Airport. Now we have other projects that were in the cooker or in the queue, so to speak, um, that are similar to that, uh, that I can't talk about, but because we, this one's public, we, I can talk about this one. Um, we finally handed over the, both the 3D, uh, 3D visualization model and the, um, what I would call the uh, financial and um, power system design to build that 400 acre net, close to net zero infrastructure out there, a new city being kind of built out near the airport. We handed over to Excel and now they're gonna be costing it um, along with, uh, with Panasonic, who's their partner for some of the kit that they might wanna purchase. And then I'll be filed at the commission here in the state, uh, probably next maybe two or three months. And I think that's an exciting project because I sort of see that, you know, the developer is engaged, like Aaron was referring to. That's a really important question that Aaron brought up. Um, the other stakeholders who have a, you know, sort of political and financial say in the outcome are involved in it. And so I think um, there's enough desire, you know, to make, to see this thing be successful amongst, you know, not just the operator Excel, but the land developer and even the people that are now beginning to purchase land and build out, um, you know, large theaters. They're, they're actually doing 
all kind of cool stuff. They're going to, you know, sort of mixed retail thing they're going to build out there first with a bunch of hotels. That's a cool project because I think it's going to, it's going to show a model for how you actually can make these larger net zero districts actually work as opposed to getting into cat fights. Um, so I kind of like that project. Um, and we're, we're going to not just do that. We're moving to the next phase of that, which is to bring in the um, electric transportation modeling and how does that, if everybody there purchases an electric car, which is you know imminently possible by the time this thing gets finished and constructed, then how can we um, use the traffic flow and the charging patterns to you know clip off you know half of the peak during the day? So it's cool stuff. Matt, one thing um, that I'm noticing come up a lot in discussions I'm having with both the you know technology vendors in this space as well as utilities is how are we going to start modeling the grid based off, you know, decentralization, decarbon decarbonization, de digitalization? What about um, this partnership, this project with Panasonic and Excel in, in, this, um, quote, in Denver? How are you guys addressing, addressing grid modeling? I know that, you know, a lot of things are done from a top-down approach, but we're seeing that this top-down approach of grid modeling really isn't effective um, to manage DERs and traditional generation sources. So how are you guys kind of, if you can talk about it, how are you guys addressing that issue of grid modeling as it is today? You know, Aaron, are you sure you don't want to come over to the lab and, and, uh, and maybe help me out? I think you would be very good. <laughs> Thank you. I would love to come visit. I definitely, I spend a lot of time in Denver. I can't believe I haven't been um, to see you guys' facility yet. That's something that that tour is something I'll definitely take you up on that offer. But I, I think that this grid modeling piece is becoming such a big question for people um, in the industry is really connecting that centralized gener gener generation and distributed generation. How can you model across all of these things as opposed to, and to like the, the silos that they've traditionally be, been managed? And how are you guys looking yeah. at that? Okay, yeah, absolutely. So I'm happy to take that one on. Um, so I think um, a couple things. One is um, we are trying to get faster and um, and more integrated. And what I mean by that is the uh, a lot of the modeling that is done right now, and we're talking about the standard software off this you know off the shelf vendors like Syme, Synergy. Um, there's a there's two or three more, but um, they are still kind of uh, based on the fundamental model that deals with load forecasting and deals with um, power system models on, you know, costing for, you know, poles and wires and you're building it out to peak and, and you know, there's a lot of assumptions in the kind of way we used to do things for a long time. Um, they're more sophisticated and they um, can present a lot more different kind of models and they can deal with DER uh, in a, what I would say, an aggregated kind of way, but they're not very good in the granular way. And then there's all this software, right, that like you're saying, like Integral Analytics and a bunch of other software companies that um, we have worked with in the past that are dealing with the highly granular, you know, LMP, um, you know, how much can you really get out of, you know, congested networks, you know, they're dealing with that really super granular down to the uh, feeder or um, substation level, you know, how many DERs could you get at what point in time and defer a certain amount of poles and wires, and how do you integrate that with a you know long-term system power plan? But it's not like you said; it's it's absolutely not um, giving us the 
answers that we need now considering the penetration that we have in DER. So here's how we're trying to deal with that. Um, one of the big things that we've noticed that um, is missing in the discussion is the building load profiles um, and right-sizing them using efficiencies such that you can really reduce the amount of actual infrastructure you have to build right away from the very beginning. And the building, um, the building control uh, models that show load profiles and how that interacts with the grid, that integration between the building load, which is a big part of the load, right, um, and the transportation load and the DER um, generation, all of those different systems we are integrating into an automated, uh, an integrated system. It's called transmission and distribution integrated um, modeling, TND. And there's only maybe about three of those that are around the world that are really mature enough to actually um, give a credible answer to these problems. And we are accelerating that TND or tr um, transmission distribution integrated modeling uh, with a building load profile that now begins to actually integrate both the load, the supply and demand load part, and the um, power systems modeling flow, which has traditionally been separated, and integrating them together. And then the, finally, the last thing I'll say before I go on about this is we are, um, we are in the process of acquiring the assets and the capital and all the code necessary um, to automate that process so that we can do very large-scale um, modeling for you know net zero projects or interconnection wide projects um, and do that in a way such that you could go and say hey I want to build this um, city uh, at 50% renewables and X amount of efficiency and I want this much amount of uh, distributed energy because we think that we can afford that we can we're now getting to the point where we're going to be able to model those things in you know a week or two as opposed to requiring a high-performance computer and doing it you know over 30 days using you know thousands and thousands and thousands of simulations over 8760 uh, year, right? So we're trying to get it faster, quicker, and more mobile so that people could eventually be able to do this, distribution planners at utilities, they will be able to do this within their own systems, you know. Hopefully in a day or two they can provide an answer on things that required a much, much longer period of time um, to get the answer. So that's that's the effort we're trying to, to move in the direction we're moving in. Um, you're talking about trying to determine that building load Whose responsibility do you see that being? Do you see that being the utility? Do you see that being the owner of that building? Um, do the architects? I mean, who all comes into play when you start to determine those types of things? And whose responsibility is it um, to make sure that those that the forecast is accurate um, and can be accounted for? How do you see that responsibility being broken down? Yeah, so um, I'll dance around this one a little bit since we um, don't advocate for policy, which is moving into a policy. That's a little bit of a policy uh, discussion, but it's a good one. Um, I can tell you, this is what I would say about that. Um, I'll tell you how it worked in our projects. We've got three or four projects that are similar to the Panasonic project, um, three of which are not public now. And they're all kind of, um, if, if, this represents the model that might work. In other words, it's giving us answers that people can actually make decisions on, uh, large investment decisions on. I would say, at least the way it's working for us, is that the it's a combination of the land developer, the people actually um, 
developing the land for construction of the buildings and the um, architects who are actually con uh, have been charged to uh, design the actual energy master plan and they are collectively providing the initial data sets we need to build out the entire uh, infrastructure and they're cooperating because they have an interest in uh, seeing much much um, higher penetrations of uh, clean energy and much much greater efficiency constructed built into the environment before they actually do it so I think it's unfortunately it's a complicated answer but um, it's it's right now it's the land developers and the um, you know the, the actual architects like Tishman Spire or whomever the larger architects is actually being hired to do it. A um, couple of very large, really big um, uh, global high-rise type headquarter projects that we're considering being working on um, are this the same dynamic. They're giving us the initial, the architect and the building owner and the land developer all collectively giving us a piece of the puzzle and then we're kind of mashing that into the, uh, the power systems model. I think that just you mentioning, you know, how you guys are having some success around this area um, is important because I think a lot of the times um, during these projects, people aren't sure of, of how responsibility falls on each other. And I know that that can be influenced by funding and, and politics, but I think it's important um, just for everybody to understand how many different stakeholders and partners are part of these projects and how, how they can work out um, differently and achieve you know, similar outcomes. But um, I thank you for that insight. Dylan, I know you have a long list of questions, so I'm done taking Matt down this rabbit hole. No, I, like, I liked it. I was a little lost because I'm not as good at research as you, as you both are. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I thought I, I liked that. But yeah, I did wanna shift the focus to talk a little bit more about the net zero work you're doing. Net zero, of course, for people who haven't heard uh, is it's also called uh, you you might have heard it also called I think it's uh, it's net zero but it's also called zero net and also zero energy I think are the other names for it it's where uh, you you have buildings or neighborhoods or cities that generate as much power as that generate as much power as they use through renewables you said Enrail's working on stuff with that. Uh, and consumers are starting to take it into account when they're shopping for houses or looking to build houses. So how do you feel how do you feel progress is going on that? I know a lot of cities have net zero goals. Do you think that the goals are ambitious enough? Do you think the goals are being met from what you've seen? And do you like the the work that you're seeing being done in this regard by NREL and by others? I know yeah. that's like five questions, so, but um... <laughs> no, it's well, yeah, I think the five questions they, you know, just like you look as an example, the three different ways you described it um, is also representative of the state of the of the net zero community. Now, I myself am not, I haven't spent a lot of time in this space, but so I might have a uh, a decent perspective on it, which is I'm not jaded or overly influenced by one particular event that's happening or project that I see. Well, here's what I would say about that, at least from NREL and the work that I've seen our researchers working on, on specific projects, um, it's slow. And um, I would say that it's indicative, the situation with net zero development, whether you're talking about one individual building, like let's say a large bank wants to build a brand new headquarters 
in New York, and um, it's 2.5 million square feet, and they want to get as close to net zero as possible. You know, that's a different conversation than say um, a military base. Uh, and this is this shows you how complicated this can get. Um, we do work with the military quite a bit. All the uh, all the armed services, um, if they want to do uh, 90 days or more um, of capability to be off grid. Um, is that a net zero project, or is that a resiliency project? Um, it, it, it gets squarely really fast. And so I think that's what I'm noticing about the net zero uh, projects is that we're sort of in a state where all the stakeholders who are involved in these big projects, and some of them are really exciting and really and just incredible projects. Um, the, the best that we seem to be able to do right now is um, we can't agree as collective stakeholders on necessarily the absolute definition of, or what the threshold of net zero is going to be in a specific project. That becomes a really, um, a big red herring and something that slows the project down. It makes people mad. <laughs> um, so uh, I find, or we've found so far, not me personally, but the researchers working on these projects, that um, if we can get over uh, the, uh, conflict or the perceived conflict about um, what net zero is and how much of it do we want um, and focus on um, what the capability is of the technologies and the financial metrics that everybody can kind of agree to and or can live with um, that we can make pretty good progress on significant large projects that get us to uh, something close to net zero without, um, you know, slowing the whole project down and spending three years arguing about, you know, do we need to have 50,000 homes in Arizona be completely, you know, um, exporting, importing energy at, you know, one-to-one -one level at this time. So avoiding the engineering definition of net zero and focusing on what everybody in the political stakeholder group can agree on about what they are happy with um, and then moving and working on engineering after you've sort of had that kind of agreement, consensus agreement, or close to consensus, that's what I've discovered um, gets us to projects that actually start to work. And I know it sounds kind of like a squishy um, political stakeholder kind of management discussion, but um, that's what I'm discovering. The technology and the and the capital and the uh, building controls and all the stuff that is involved with net zero projects, it's probably a little bit further ahead than the capability of stakeholders to be able to make projects work. Uh, that's kind of what I'm noticing. I don't know if that statement makes sense. No, it, it does. Uh, it, it makes sense because the, the net, a lot of the net zero technology, at least for places that can utilize it, exists. It, it's, it's all, and then from there, it's all logistics and policy and laws and all, all that sort of thing. Uh, like you're saying, Matt, Nezir technology exists. It it, it can work. And uh, I saw I saw something by the Zero Energy Project that that said you can it, that a, a net zero home, a zero energy home, starts saving you money the first year you own the house, and from that, then onward. So it's not it's not just something that that saves you money the long run. It saves you starts saving you money immediately. And yet. You said that the that the adoption of net zero is, is slow, and I, I I think that's just like visibly true because you don't see a lot of you don't see a lot of uh, 
net zero homes. At least I don't in my area. You don't hear you don't hear your your friends and family saying, "Oh yeah, I just bought a zero energy house." So why do you th- why do you think there's that? If it's if it's economically feasible and the technology exists, why do you think it's being adopted so slowly? Yeah. So um, I'm a former uh, executive at uh, utility running regulation, so I think I can answer the question. <laughs> um, and it is it it is not something that the lab necessarily can answer or should answer, but I will answer it as a as a as a person. And, my, and individually, myself, what my perspective is. I do think that the people that do um, a lot of the capital financial models for um, all types of energy resources and, and some regulatory impacts that um, a lot of these technologies have on the grid, they would have probably the same answer. And I think that has a lot to do um, with the current way that we uh, capitalize, construct, and build assets and, frankly, have to maintain and operate um, the existing grid as it is. Um, net zero development um, at scale is deployed both at the residential scale and the commercial scale um, in cities uh, would have a just, you know, a trim, just if you just think about the implication of what we're saying, it would have a really profound um, impact on load and on, on uh, forecasting load and on the power system and what demands need to be met. And I don't know if uh, the current financial structure, both from the commissions and the way that utilities are um, incented to make money and the way that they build out and need to maintain the reliability of the grid, I really don't think that those two things are aligned in any kind of way to make this happen at scale. So I don't think the issue resides in the technological way. I think the issue resides in, you know, as a former utility executive myself, I think it resides in how do, how do we enable and allow our operators, both, you know, the distribution utility, but also the bulk powers, um, ISOs as well, worldwide, not just in the U.S. How do we enable that, you know, and I say this in in a somewhat skeptical way, how do we enable that, you know, sort of lofty vision of, you know, cloud based, you know, an energy system that is highly distributed, um, that, um, it has a very, very different way of operating and is financed um by the utilities uh and how the, how does how do we get around this issue of we're going to have no load growth or almost zero load growth load growth in a particular area especially at a scale um how does that how does that ensure the reliability of the system and its financing needs as you begin to operate it a different way so i i think that's where the issue is um as opposed to you know, could we just deploy a net zero? You know, if we had enough money, we could just throw the technology and build a net zero development right now uh, in Pena and in that Panasonic project. We could do that, but um, that would pose a lot of non. Um, it, it posed a lot of long-term problems to the industry that we really haven't, I think, fully confronted. So I think that's where the issue is. So is that where NREL comes in, trying to figure out what that what that future grid looks like with these sort of projects yeah you know so i would say um i think nrel comes in in a very precise uh role in that equation which is that we can show either through three-dimensional mapping or through really rigid and um extremely deliberate incredible power systems analysis or financial modeling or cost curve 
discussions on technologies or the um, advancing the state of um, you know battery dispatch, all the technological or technical components that actually would make this happen in a way that's feasible. I think we that's our sweet spot, and we really really want to work with our partners and we continue to work with them and a lot of utilities on that component. If we're talking about going to the commission and um, you know trying to figure out what the new earnings adjustment mechanisms in New York for Rev would look like and who should get paid and all that. We are not in that business. So um, that's how we keep ourselves neutral and that's how we keep ourselves from uh, being perceived as, you know, weighing in on one particular party or other. We, we're not in that business. We're a federal lab and we're here to kind of help answer the technical question. And I think that's a good role for us. One thing I did want to say, um, which I think is interesting and it came to mind um, we're talking about, you know, net net zero uh, communities is um, the way that the community, the people in the community themselves perceive these goals um, and how can they start to play a role to just the average members in the community. So one thing in Austin, I know that um, had occurred after attending a few of the meetings from a, a solar advocacy group here is they've actually been working with um, local government to to pass a regulation that requires every home built in Austin, I think as of 2017, um, it has to be built to um, essentially support solar panels if the homeowner chose to have solar panels on their roof. A lot of these old homes, um, you can't actually put solar panels on the roof and have them have them be as effective as you would like. So it's just you know, I think some small things around design and the customer playing, you know, a big role again and, and how energy is consumed and delivered and then how can we start to design our communities um, that is more reflective of the way that people are going to want to consume energy in the future is, is just kind of a, a, a theme, I think, that goes goes along with what Matt was talking about. I, I would 100% agree with what you're saying. I really do believe that a lot of what will happen now over the next decade or two in the energy sector here in the U.S. will be driven by um, not just the technology or what utilities want or what regulators want or what the lab is working on, but, you know, what are what do, what is the relationship that us, all three of us on this phone call, um, have with energy and what do we what do we want out of it? Is it different from what we had before because we have this capability of generating and doing things on our own and within the house or automated systems in the house? Is that important to us? Is it about the money and the price? You know, I totally agree with you. That That's the thing that's going to drive the markets, you know. Home Depot, you know, Nest thermostats or whatever it is, but it's the consumer markets that will have just a profound impact on how we deliver the system. I, I totally agree with that. I've always felt that people want, uh, if not, you know, full net zero, people want better energy efficiency overall, because it, for various reasons, number one of which is it cuts your bill, which people like, and also because, uh, you know, there's, there's economic reasons for it, ecological reasons for it, and then moral arguments among sprinkled on top, of course. I think we're seeing a, a sort of shift in this, but it's it's always seemed like self-generation, ec- energy efficiency, that all of these things are like luxuries because they're either installed in new houses or you have to severely 
you have to sink a lot of money to retrofit your house to be, you know, to be able to have solar panels. Um, so I, I, I definitely agree with you when you said that there's a huge like regulatory and also uh, grid based reason why the net zero isn't happening. But I think, uh, I think you're, I think, I think part of that was also because of this view of uh, of more efficient ha- more efficient housing was seen as something with a with a high financial barrier to entry, and I think that we're seeing that change, and I think we're going to continue to see that change, especially with things like Aaron was talking about about how you know a lot of cities now are saying you know new houses need to be built with these sorts of things in mind you know those new houses will get older and people will be able to start buying them cheaper and they'll still have be they'll been built from the beginning with those sorts of uh with those sorts of things in mind and i think as we're seeing um this kind of be addressed in some of the pilot projects we're seeing from utilities occurring in these lower income communities is how can you bring, like you said, Dylan, this idea of energy efficiency that used to be a luxury to these communities that may have thought, you know, I would I would never live in a very energy efficient, um, technologically advanced home. And we're, I, for example, I know that, you know, ComEd was working um, on, on a, a pilot like this in, in Brownsville, a lower income community where they installed a bunch of, you know, smart city technology um and expose those people uh to what the future of energy could look like by simply you know putting that demonstration into their community so i think it's something that's being you know addressed and and looked at i but i think we're still pretty far off in in addressing you know how to make it economically feasible and everybody who needs the access has the access to energy and low energy bills yeah, you know, what I would say from the lab's standpoint is that um, a a good proportion of this this is an interesting topic, and we won't have a lot of time to cover this. I think maybe you can you can move this, maybe pick pluck this one out. And you, I have I know you guys have talked about this before in other podcasts, but um, the issue of um, making um, making technology, energy technologies work for all people. Uh, in all classes and and for the whole society as a whole. And what's the most, e- you know, uh, economically feasible way to do that? Um, so that just, so that, you know, so that advanced technology doesn't become something that just benefits people who have um, more means. I think um, what we are seeing in the lab when we get questions or um, uh, technical questions about projects that they're trying to construct or build or fundamental science issues on the grid for future reference a lot of it there's not this is complicated to say but um they're not explicit they being our partners are not explicitly asking the question about social equity but it plays a enormous implicit role in the financial modeling and how the answers that we try to seek to achieve together on these technologies and um that is i see that as an increasing uh fundamental demand that will be placed into all future projects energy projects it's, it's always has been that way i mean you know the regulatory regime we have has all always been about try to get to the least cost path 
Um, and so um, that's definitely something that we account for in all the projects that the lab does across all of the lab, not just the, the modeling side, um, is um, what's the uh, pricing and sort of economic implica implication of, of delivering these services and, and changing the grid the way that we're doing with these technologies. We always cost out all the stuff. So uh, it's a very important question and we, we do take it into account. It's just not explicitly called out in projects. It's just, it's sort of inherent in, in the business and the work that we do is how are we gonna make this cost effective and how do you drive down the cost of doing it um, in a technological way? And I guess ultimately that's what makes this space so unique, what makes energy as a product and as a business so unique from basically any other type of business and even any other type of service is the idea that um, it's not, you know, it's not something you basically choose to consume. It's something you ha pretty much have to consume to live in the 21st century. Uh, and the and the the businesses that provide them you know they they have to they have to make money they have to turn a profit they have obligations either to uh investors or to the government but they they have those obligations but uh because of the the nature of the product and the nature of the business you have to find this equilibrium of being able to provide the, your product at all times without interruption and also address that the 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 social equity as you were talking about uh so that this product that people have to consume isn't eating 75% of their paycheck um so yeah i think i think ultimately and this goes back to the very beginning why this the kind of research that you do at NREL uh is important is because the the, the nature of energy as an industry demands that we have modern we have modern solutions to modern energy problems that don't only benefit the the people with the best technology and the people with the means to shoulder the burden the cost burdens uh because everyone has to have energy yeah there's a um and, there, and this is not a political statement at all but um i kind of like this uh some uh somebody was saying this i can't remember whether it was a politician running for office or whether it was a scientist or who it was because i because i cannot remember who it is um, but you know what what the person said was uh we don't want um and I think this was somebody within within the lab was somebody one of the researchers you know we're not looking for the answer that um one of our stakeholders, whether they are a uh, wealthy landowner or land developer or a banker or uh utility operator or a regulator, we're not looking to find the answer that um, they're looking for. We're looking for the answer that actually is based on um, how the system operates and how it can be done in a cost-effective way. And um, so what's interesting about the work the lab does is sometimes we um, put a lot of um, really hard ground truth, um, evidence-based, you know, experimental-based uh, research out there. And it doesn't always have the answers that people want or like. Um, and that means that we can maintain our sort of neutral stance on how do we make this benefit everybody. And that's one of the reasons why I work at the lab, I think, is because I feel like we strive as hard as we can as a research facility um, to put put open data out there, uh, do the research in a quality way, and um, let decision makers and everybody else and all of us um, 
figure out a way to make, to make this, the new system work in a way that's equitable and, and benefits everybody. All right. Well, uh, we are at time. So, but this is a very, very worthwhile discussion. So I thank you very much, Matt, for coming on the podcast. It was great to have you. Yeah, thank you very much. And it's always a pleasure to, to interact with you guys. Can't wait to see you guys next on the, you know, the next show that you guys put out. I'm looking forward to it. Get to go, get back to my hometown in Austin, you know. That's my hometown. So good luck with the traffic down there, Aaron. I'm I'm actually heading down there today, like in a couple of hours. So I should probably get packed. Um, Aaron, thanks for being here. Thanks, Dylan. I'm looking forward to having all of the Z primers in Austin. We don't get to have, get to be around each other um, all the time since we do have people working outside of Austin. So I'm excited to see everyone. And thank you, Matt. Um, I will try my hardest to practice patience as I'm driving north to south anywhere in this city. <laughs> yep, we just need to get Elon and uh, his company in there, and let's let's get the hyperloop going between you know Austin, Texas, and uh, I don't know maybe Dallas or something else. But we'll we'll keep praying. I love that. Thank you for having me on the show. If you want to find our research and media, you can see it at etsinsights.com. Aaron and I are on social media at dy lockwood at Aaron underscore Hardick. And Z Prime is there at Z Prime underscore research. My name is Dylan. Thank you for listening. We'll see you all next time. <laughs> <laughs>